Okay, good to be back. Thank you, thank you, the Rashiva. And uh, good to see you all again. Today um, we'll be talking, we always, we always talk about the Holocaust, and there's, uh, it's a limitless, endless topic. We always try to find something interesting and um, get, get things from a different angle. That's what we generally do here. This time I um, try to think a little bit out of the box. And I think I think it's a good topic. You guys will let me know if it, uh, how it goes over. Um, there's a big uh, what I discover on groups uh, when we go to Europe, and also uh, uh, groups I meet here and, and lectures is a, a little bit of a misunderstanding and a misconception, and how we separate two historical events that took place simultaneously. And one is World War Two, and the second one is the Holocaust. Uh, more so by Israelis, but by Jewish Americans also they have this, uh, this occasionally because we have the eternal claim on victimhood. So there was nothing else going on in the world during the years of 1939 to 1945 except for the Holocaust. Uh, nothing else happened. Um, it happens to be there was a war going on in the background, but that's irrelevant. It really is important was that six million Jews were killed. Now, I'm not coming here to tell the story of World War II and why it's an important story. That, uh, that you can find out, and there's a lot of great movies about to find out because no one's going to read books about it. Anyway, so, so, but what I want to talk about today is how, how actually the two are very interconnected. Um, and we can't separate them. And the progression of the battlefields of World War II on various fronts actually directly had a, a direct impact on the anti-Jewish policies of of, uh, of of the Nazis, of Hitler, of, of the SS, on the final solution, on which Jews get killed and when, and therefore it's a, important to understand uh, certain elements and aspects of World War II just to be able to put the Holocaust into proper perspective. And uh, therefore I want to try to cover that angle today as much as we can. Just I'm going to just bring up... Uh, several different examples over the course, and we'll try to examine each one uh, on its own uh, merits. So the two are not two separate histories, they're actually quite interconnected. If we think about it, at the most basic level, it's quite obvious. Why? Because there were half a million Jews living in Germany in 1933, when Hitler rises to power. The Nazi party comes to power, and Hitler uh, makes uh, Germany from a democracy into dictatorship, and and the Nazi Party becomes the entire Germany. So the the there's a half a million Jews there, less than one percent of the population. And had there been no war, that would have been the entire story of the Holocaust, right? Two thirds of those Jews emigrate before the war, even. So there's about two hundred thousand Jews in Germany in 1939, at the end of 1939, and um, most of them are obviously killed in the uh, in the Holocaust of those 200 plus thousand Jews in Germany. And that would have been the entire story. In other words, had there been no war, we would have been talking about uh, uh, close to 200,000 German Jews being killed by the Nazis during the Nazi era in Germany, um, which is terribly, would have been terribly tragic. Uh, you know, to, close to 200,000 Jews being killed. But we wouldn't be talking about a Holocaust of European Jewry and six million Jews had there not been a war. Because in order for... Hitler to have gotten to most of Europe's Jews, he would have to occupy those countries and get there, and then Jews are under his control, he would have to invade Poland, the Polish army would have to be defeated, Poland would have to become an occupied country, and then the three million Jews of Poland would be under Nazi control. Same thing with the Soviet Union, the same thing with France, with Holland, with... Uh, with uh, Belgium and uh, Yugoslavia and Greece and any other country that had a Jewish population in Europe, had there not been a war, those Jews and those Jewish communities would never have been under Nazi control, and then there would have been no Holocaust in those countries. Um, how do I know that? Because the Jews of Switzerland did not get killed in the Holocaust, because Hitler never invaded Switzerland. And there were plenty of Jews living in Switzerland at the time, um, so... That means that no war, no Jews get killed. Um, so the the that's a very at a, at a very basic level, World War Two is very connected to the Holocaust because 
Had there been no war, there would have been very limited Holocaust. It would have been just a German Jewry, maybe Austria too, because the Anschluss took place before World War One. So the 200,000 Jews living in Austria would have been under Nazi control even without a war. And maybe the Sudetenland, the portion of Czechoslovakia as well, because Hitler occupied the Sudetenland after the Munich conference in uh, September 1938 um, without firing a shot as well. Um, so possibly there would have been other limited Jewish communities under Nazi occupation without a war, but very little. So World War II needs to happen in order for Hitler to reach the Jewish communities of Europe and to wipe out European Jewry. But that's at a very basic level. I think all of us probably knew that and understood that even before this lecture. I want to try to... I wonder if there's a thought to say maybe German Jews also, because only once he saw that what he was controlled was then he thought So the rabbi's always a little ahead of the game. And so you guys are lucky to have a rabbi like this. Come on. <laughs> so, but the exactly, exact, the main point I want to bring out is that the final solution only was decided upon and implemented because of the war and because of how the war was progressing. And therefore, even German Jews would have, would have been spared that fate. Exactly, exactly, exactly. That's the main point I was getting to. You're a step ahead of the game. Um, the In order to understand that, in order to get to that, I want to just explain a little bit about um, German strategy. Um, the 19th century is the age of imperialism. Uh, the empires, when the great empires of Europe feel like they're entitled to carve up the rest of the world and make them their personal colonies, and um, imperialism is a big topic, it's quite controversial and is very relevant today because we're still living with the after effects of it, but without getting into getting a too off track, that's what the great empires of Europe and, and the Ottoman Empire, which is not exactly a European empire, are doing. They're carving up the world, mainly Asia and Africa, but also other parts of the world, and uh, the Pacific and, and other areas, and they, and they feel entitled to do so. And there's a lot of racism involved and a lot of economic greed involved and a lot of military power, and very much so maritime power, navies. Because in order to get to these places and maintain control, now who comes out the biggest from this whole scramble of uh, empires in the age of imperialism? Anyone know? I want to guess. There you go. There you go. The sun never set on the British Empire until it did, and um, and the the uh, the they they have the greatest navy in the world, and they have the most overseas colonies. And the dynamics of this power exchange changed dramatically after World War I. Because all the defeated uh, entities of World War I, their empires collapse and they lose almost all their overseas colonies. The Ottoman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and importantly for our discussion, the German Empire. Right? Otto von Bismarck, the Kaisers, the monarchy is abolished. This is all a result of World War One, and England comes out stronger than ever, um, and so does France, and uh, to a lesser extent the United States, although they deny till today that they were actually an empire. Eh, so we had the Philippines, big deal. Um, so, so, the, but, but that's why am I explaining all this? Hitler's mindset was shaped by these events. His formative years, his education. He grows up in that era, he fights for the Ger he's Austrian, but fights for the Kaiser, the German army, during World War I, and he sees the defeat, and although um, Admiral something von Tirpitz, the founder of the modern German navy, built up the German navy into a substantial navy, it, it, it didn't come close to the British Navy, or the United States Navy, or the Japanese Navy, maybe not even to the Tsarist Russian Navy. The German Navy lagged behind. And the German mindset was very landlocked. Very, um, very Europe-based. And especially after World War I and their defeat, many German generals felt that Germany's future lay in Europe itself.
And there's no way to beat the British Empire. And Germany needs natural resources. Germany needs a better economy. And one of the main pillars of Nazi ideology is Lebensraum, living space. That living space cannot be African colonies. It cannot be Asian colonies like the British because no one can beat the British Empire. And, and, uh, and, and England is so good at racism that Nazi, that Nazi racial ideology can't even outdo them as far as it goes for the Asian and African people. So they can't defeat their navy, they can't defeat, beat their racism. So we, we can leave, leave the world for England. We need to be the masters of Europe, especially looking east. They saw the east, eastern Europe, Poland, the Soviet Union, as the Asia-Africa of Europe. Lower races, natural resources, oh, that's where, that's where the dreams can come true. That's where the alternative to the British Empire, the land-based British Empire for Germany, can be without a strong navy. He had a pretty good navy during World War II, as it was, but primarily with submarines, U-boats. Did not have um, a single aircraft carrier, had barely any battleships, which were almost obsolete um, in the Atlantic. And, um, and the only thing that was going for the German Navy, the, the Kriegsmarine, the, the German Navy, during World War II was the U-boats, um, Admiral Karl Dunitz. Um, but his focus was on the army, on the Wehrmacht, the army, the, the, land, the land troops, and his air force, building up the Luftwaffe, his air force, which is being built up new by, from scratch by anyone, because airplane technology was brand new at the time. So people had, for millennia, had, had seen it as navy and army. Now there was a third branch, so that was a new thing to deal with. But primarily it was either army or navy. That's how people saw it. And, and Hitler was focused on the army and focused on this idea of a land empire in Europe. Why is this whole long introduction, which has seemingly no relevance at all to the Holocaust and the Jewish people, why is it so important to understand? Because since that's Hitler's philosophy, that means his war is going to be fought in the countries where most of Europe's Jews were. The Eastern Front. As far as Hitler was concerned, World War II was in the Eastern Front. All the other fronts of the war were were on the back burner, as far as he was concerned. His war was being fought against first Poland, then the Soviet Union, and the West was a mere distraction, including the rest of the occupation in Europe. It was just to knock France out of the war. And he thought maybe England, and he gave up on that idea quickly. And the, the, he just thought he could outflank them at the North Sea with Norway. I'm not going to get into the whole military aspect of the war. But his war is being fought in the East. There's 3.5 million Jews in Poland. There's 3 million Jews in the Soviet Union. There's 750,000 Jews in Romania. There's over half a million in Hungary. There's another few hundred thousand in the Baltic states, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, which is technically part of the Soviet Union at the beginning of the war. That's where Europe's Jews are. There's more Jews on two blocks in Warsaw than in the entire Belgium or Holland. European, Western European Jewish communities weren't all that large. So if this is Hitler's strategy, and this is his war goals, and this is his ideology of Lebensraum, and of going to the East, and of seeing the Eastern Slavs, the non-Jewish Slavs, as lower races... That, that, that the rules of war don't apply to, which we'll see. We'll, we'll talk about also because that has relevance to the Jews and how the treatment of the Jews. Then, then, then this br- brutal, horrible war, this awful war with no rules, is going to be fought in the places which are heavily populated by the Jews of Europe. And that brings us, so that's, that's the story of World War II, as far as the Germans are concerned. So where's France? And he did attack France before Russia. Right. That was, that was more, you're saying, just to get that It was out. strategic. It's a good question. He, he, he has, he, he has, here's the, here's the issue. Poland has a very strong alliance with France. France and England. It was more France. Right? He needs his, his strategies to attack Poland. But he needs to cover his. He can't have. He can't. He can't repeat Germany's disaster of World War One. He has PTSD from World War One, 
And the, the, the two-front war, which is what he ended up with, did, did repeat itself, but that's what he was trying to prevent the whole time. And the French army, during World War One, right, uh, uh, Field Marshal Ferdinand Foch, uh, how do you pronounce the, his name, is the World War One hero. He's, the, he's the, the one who won World War One was the French, after losing millions of, of soldiers. But they stopped him at Verdun, they stopped him at the Somme. They stopped him, and the German army was never able to advance and get to Paris. For four years, there's this stalemate on the Western Front. We know that all is quiet on the Western Front, after everything ends, right? And they just read, I think they read it, Netflix has a remake of it. It was an old classic, and now they redid it. It's a great movie. But uh, that's, 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 the, that's, that's World War I, and, and he can't have a repeat of that. Um, he needs to take care of France. And and what he does is that he shocks the world. A week before World War II breaks out, August 23rd, 1939, one of the most important things that people overlook in the history of the 20th century, because the Soviet Union did everything they can to make sure people overlook it, is the Molotov-Von-Ribbentrop Pact is signed. The non-aggression pact between two sworn enemies... Communism and Nazism, Hitler and Stalin, two great enemies who would ultimately once again be enemies less than two years later, they make an aggression pact. Molotov, the foreign minister of uh, the Soviet Union, and Joachim von Ribbentrop, the foreign minister of Nazi Germany, they signed this non-aggression pact in Moscow. Shocks the world. England and France, the United States, er- Japan. Everyone is shocked by this. They, no one knows what to do with it. And Hitler never planned for two minutes to honor this pact. It was strategically important for him to protect his flank. Because since the French-Polish alliance was strong, he knew that France was going to declare war. And he could not have a two-front war. He could not have the Soviet Union to deal with at the time. So he said, I'm going to have to defeat France first because they're going to declare war on me when I invade Poland. And I can't have the Soviet Union here. So let's keep them at bay. And then when France is defeated, and he hoped even the British Empire would be defeated, then we can go ahead and break the Molotov and Ribbentrop non-aggression pact, invade the Soviet Union, destroy the Soviet Union, and we're the victors of Europe. He never wanted the United States to be involved in the war. This is another story. Is the Pacific theater and the United States at all a factor in, in, in what goes on in the Holocaust, right? Is that theater of the war, does it have an impact on the Holocaust? Very little, but we'll see that it does also. Little bit. Very small. And um, but he never wanted the United States to be part of the war. He never. It was. It was. He knew. He knew that that would be his end. Um, Japan didn't didn't uh, inform Hitler of their plans about Pearl Harbor. His ally, their ally. Neither did Hitler inform Japan about his invasion of the Soviet Union. They were wonderful allies. They were allies that never fought together. Actually, um, they they what um, battle they did. It's a different story, and they, 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 and Hitler was not required under the Axis Agreement to declare war in the United States after Pearl Harbor, and he made a strategic blunder. He did. Um, had he not, then Roosevelt would have had a tough time convincing the American people to declare war on Germany as well. Um, they were happy to go to war with Japan after Pearl Harbor. They were still very isolationist as far as Europe was concerned. And Hitler made the opening for America to enter the European War by declaring war on the United States. But we're jumping ahead of the story. So, so the, the, where was I? So we get back to what you said before, the final solution. The final solution we refer to as, as the Nazi uh, attempt at wiping out the Jewish people of Europe. And Unfortunately, tragically, a quite successful attempt. Uh, six million Jews were killed during the final solution. Now, there's a big debate among historians. When we refer to the Holocaust or the Shoah. So we're talking about the final solution. So it has a very clear beginning and end. 
right? The end is when when not when Nazi Germany is defeated. The beginning is more or less sometime at the end of 1941. We don't know an exact date. We know that on June 22, 1941, Operation Barbarossa, when the German army invades the Soviet Union, we know that the final solution had not yet been decided upon. We also know that by December, it had already been decided upon previously. We don't know when in between that little window it was decided to implement the final solution. But that narrows it down, kind of. We know it was probably, most likely, sometime in October, November, there was a decision made by Hitler and Himmler and his top people to implement the final solution. So then we're careful to use the terminology final solution. But if we would use the term Holocaust or Shoah, then there's a big debate among historians, when does that start? When, when, when do we count the beginning? Do we say from Hitler's rise to power in 1933, and he's already legislating all kinds of limitations and decrees to make the lives miserable and, and challenging for the Jews of Germany? That's the beginning of the Holocaust. Do we say it's only after Kristallnacht, when there's this outright pogrom against the German Jewish population, and they start getting sent to concentration camps? Do we say it's only the beginning of World War II, September 1st, 1939? Do we say it's only when Hitler invades the Soviet Union in June 22nd, 1941? Or do we say when the final solution begins, that's the beginning of the Holocaust? There's a big debate. And um, the Nafkeminas are, are, there's quite a few, but I'm not going to get into that. That's when we'll talk about the final solution. Right, out, right now I want to speak about how World War II's ups and downs, gets us to the final solution. Because final means that there were previous solutions before that that were not final. The final solution is a Nazi term, by the way. We, um, it's actually a terrible term to use. I always get upset for, for using it, because we're using a Nazi term. First of all, the connotation that, that it's final, that, that this is it, this is it for the Jewish people. But more than that, what bothers me is that we use the Nazi term solution. That means that we're acknowledging that there was a problem that needed to be solved. Right? The Jewish problem. That's a Nazi term. The Nazis considered there to be a Jewish problem, and they decided that there needs to be a solution. So I don't like using the term, but, but, but this is used because we're, we're seeing it from the Nazi perspective, what they were, what they were trying to do to the Jewish people. So the... the um, the uh, the there were there were several solutions before that. For instance, there are at least four, possibly more. Um, in the years leading up to World War II, the German Jews, and then after the Anschluss in March 1938, so the Austrian Jews as well. The solution is uh, was from the Nazi perspective was to encourage Jews to emigrate, to leave Germany. We want Germany to be Judenrein free of Jews. And that was a overall pretty successful program. Two-thirds of Jews in Germany left, um, a similar number for Austrian Jews. The only reason that more Jews didn't leave was because countries wouldn't take them in. So it wasn't what the Nazis did, it was what places like the United States of America did. By the way, there's a new Ken Burns documentary out, The U.S. and the Holocaust. It's only six and a half hours long, so you should be able to finish it fairly easily. If you haven't seen it yet, I highly recommend it. It's very well done. And even the debates about it, a lot of editorials have been written about it, and podcasts and everything have been said about it, a lot of critique. But as I always say, critique is the greatest thing you can have, because that means people are interested in the topic you brought up. And that means people wouldn't have been discussing it had you not made it, right? So even the critique of it is a good thing. So that talks about the U.S.'s role in the Holocaust, mainly by not allowing immigration beforehand. That's the main focus of it, but it covers other angles of it as well. So that's an interesting topic. But, um, but, but uh, the, this policy, this Nazi policy, the Jewish agency in August 1933, Hitler comes to power on January 30th. By August 25th, 1933, that's uh, eight months later, the Jewish Agency for Palestine, remember there's no state of Israel yet, it's a British mandate in Palestine, has signed an agreement with Nazi Germany. And that agreement is called the Heskem Ha'avara. 
the transfer agreement. And that transfer agreement was that the Nazis wanted Jews to emigrate, but they didn't want them to take their assets with them, God forbid, because the Nazis wanted to steal their assets, right? So why should the Jews be able to take any financial assets with them? And that was a, a incentive for many German Jews not to leave, right? Especially to a place like Palestine. If you could get into the United States, so all right, so you leave your assets behind, you're going to make money in America. But if you go to Palestine, you definitely want to take your assets with you, right? So, so the Jewish agency comes up with a brilliant plan that was beneficial for all sides. The Nazis, German Jews, the Yishuv in the land of Israel, the, the, the settlement, the Jewish settlement in the land of Israel, and the British mandate. Everyone gains from this. That the Jews, German Jews escaping from the Nazis would be able to bring some of their assets as German goods, German manufactured goods, which they then would sell when they arrived here. And and have and so they had assets, so they had finance, they had cash, they had fi- so they have financial assets. The Nazis gained because even though they officially didn't allow um, a, um, a, uh, assets to be taken out, but here they're they're exporting, they're selling goods, especially since it offset the boycott that American Jewry had made against German goods to protest Hitler. So here the. The Palestine Jews are buying German products and the American Jews are boycotting German products, right? So it offset it. And the third, and the, in the, so the Nazis thought it was beneficial. The Yishuv, it was very beneficial. They got, they got an influx of imports, which created jobs and brought stuff to the market. And it brought Jews. It brought 55,000 German Jews, many of whom were educated engineers, doctors, lawyers, accountants, professors. It brought in a, a very great influx of Jewish uh, settlement into Palestine. And the British mandate liked it because they liked it when immigrants came with assets. They preferred immigrants who came with assets. That was the British Empire philosophy, is that they they always wanted people with assets because then it would develop the economy. So here everyone gains. Is very taxes from that? I don't get mm-hmm. what, what is a German gain that a Jew sells his pearls or something? Because they're German, manufa- they're German uh, company, German manufactured so goods. More stuff in Germany, Ge- right? And then, and then, and then the in the stores in Tel Aviv, they'd be selling. You'd want to buy, uh, I don't know, uh, some sort of electronic product in 1937. You're more likely to find a German one than a British or American one, because because that's what was being brought into the country. So here they got like almost a monopoly on the market. Um, plus, plus the. Um, Plus the uh, it offset the the boycott, so so that's 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 an incredible story, right? I mean the the there's this Havara agreement, which was controversial at the time, but it did help fifty five thousand German Jews escape and save their lives, them and their families. It's pretty impressive. Um, so that's that's an uh, emigration is the official policy. So why isn't that the final solution? Why doesn't emigration continue to be the policy? Because World War Two starts. See, here we have a direct impact. World War II curtails immigration. There's no shipping lines. There's no transportation. There's a war going on. There's a British naval blockade in the Mediterranean. The, there's, you can't have steady civilian immigration during a war. So the war stops emigration of Europe's Jews. Not only that, but because now we're not just talking about German Jews, we're talking about all these other countries, it's not even feasible anymore, because it's nice to say that a couple of hundred thousand German Jews can emigrate, but what are you going to do with three and a half million Jews? You can't say, hey, just emigrate. It's logistically impossible, right? So the war ends that solution. So that moves them one step closer to the final solution, to the Holocaust, because emigration is no longer an option. The next option was to bring them to transport all Jews to an area near Lublin. Called, this is called the Nisko Plan. Nisko is an area near Lublin in Poland. Dump all of Europe's Jews there, and uh, and that will that will solve the issue. That was that was abandoned pretty quickly because also nothing to do with the war. It just logistically didn't make any sense. There's not enough room for the Jews there. They couldn't even bring them all there. It didn't work out. The third solution has to do with the war. Hitler had a new plan. In 1940, 
to send all of Europe's Jews to the Soviet Union. Hey, we're allies. This is during the Molotov on Ribbentrop. Maybe Stalin, excuse me, now Hitler believed his own propaganda. He believed that all Jews were communists, and all communists were Jews. It was the uh, uh, Judeo-Bolshevik uh, conspiracy, the Jewish-Bolshevik conspiracy. So Stalin is probably dying to have millions of Europe's Jews come into the Soviet Union. And therefore, since they're allies, he can just send them across the border, and Stalin will find somewhere for them to be productive and work on a kolchoz in the collective farm or something, or the factories, and it'll be great, Right? Shockingly, Stalin wasn't that interested in the idea. He wasn't excited about taking it. So that plan was abandoned. But it wasn't entirely abandoned. Another variation of the plan was when Hitler invades the Soviet Union. Now they're not allies. A year later, June 22, 1941, Operation Barbarossa. War on the Eastern Front. The main phase of World War II from the German perspective. And now they're, now they're and, and Hitler says, 12 weeks will reach Moscow. The Red Army is going to collapse. Stalin's going to surrender. The Soviet Union will be under our control. We're going to banish them behind the Ural Mountains to, to the Asian part of Russia. And then, and then very simple, we have a solution to the Jewish question. We send them all deep into either occupied Soviet Union or, or unoccupied Soviet Union into the, into the place of war. And, uh, and we take care, we, we expel them. And we know that most of them, maybe all of them, will die in the process, either in the transport, because they're going through a war zone, or because they're going to just be abandoned in, in, in Siberia or, or, uh, or in, in some other, you know, forsaken part of the vast Soviet Union without any means of survival, without any food, millions of people, men, women, and children. And then we got rid of them. They'll die naturally. They'll, they'll be finished. And, then, uh, and that will be the solution to the Jewish question. That was a stage, right? That doesn't work. Do you know why that doesn't work? Because the Red Army never surrendered. The German armies stopped at the gates of Moscow. There were German scouts in December 1941, forward scouts, who saw the Kremlin in their field glasses. That's how close they were to... Def- probably, def- if Moscow would have fallen, it's likely that the Soviet, that the Red Army would have surrendered and the Soviet Union would have, fell, would have collapsed. Um, and that's how close they were. And then the Red Army pushes back, the winter of 1941... The first defeat German, the Germans ever sustained in World War II. The Wehrmacht had been undefeated up until that point. And, and now the Red Army doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Moscow isn't falling. Stalin doesn't even leave Moscow. And uh, now what do you do? So the war aims in the East have not been achieved. And this is the beginning of the end. Uh, 1942, he'd go on one more offensive... And that would be stopped at the Volga. Then there's the Battle of Stalingrad. And, and then it's just one defeat after another. It's just a matter of time. The Casablanca Conference makes it unconditional surrender. The Allies are not going to go for any armistice, any peace agreement with Hitler. So there's fighting till the bitter end. Um, and, and it's just one defeat. The Red, the Red Army is undefeated after 1943. So... so because of that, because the war aims are not achieved, basically by December 1941, Hitler had failed in his war goals in the East. And since he had failed, he had to rethink, what's he going to do with the Jews? Because now there's no defeated Soviet Union anymore. What am I going to do with all the millions of Jews that I planned? Okay? He had one more plan. One more plan of exile which is the, might be the most fantasy-driven plan of all of them, the Madagascar plan. It was such an interesting plan that the Israeli judges at the Eichmann trial asked Eichmann about it. They were fascinated by this plan. The Madagascar plan was Madagascar, which is an island on the east coast of Africa, in case anyone was wondering where it is, because no one's ever heard of it otherwise. And that you're, of course, an intelligent guy. <laughs> it was a French colony, and France was now two-thirds defeated, one-third a collaborationist Vichy regime. 
and the French colonies, overseas colonies, were all officially under French Vichy control. By the way, that's another front of World War II, which is related to Jews. Um, Syria and Lebanon were French colonies. Jordan, Palestine, Israel, uh, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, sort of, were all British colonies. And here you have Syria and Lebanon. And you have these Vichy French who have ports on the Mediterranean with Vichy French naval vessels not far from the Suez Canal, which is the gateway to India. The British Navy is very concerned about these Vichy French colonies. So they invade, there's a World War II front that you never heard of, they invade Syria and Lebanon. French held, uh, Vichy French held Syria and Lebanon. Where do the British have an extra army? They're fighting for their lives. This is during the Battle of London. Where do they have an extra army to do this invasion? They take colonial troops from two colonies, Jordan and Palestine, Arabs and Jews, fighting in British uniforms side by side against the French. Do you guys ever hear of Moshe Dayan, the, Brit- the Israeli general? What's his most distinguished trademark? A patch, right? Everyone thinks he looked, he looked great. You know, he looked, he, he, that's a general, that's a chief of staff, right? He, he looks like a pirate. You know, it's, it's a good thing the Egyptians came from this side during the Six Day War. Because if they would have come from the other side, he would have never even known about the war. You can't see from that eye. So he, 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 where did he lose that eye? He lost it as a British officer fighting in Lebanon during World War II, or Syria during World War II, fighting the French. That's where he lost his eye. Um, so that's, that's a front of World War II, which all those, all those Jews end up serving in the Palmach, in the Haganah, they got their military training from the British during World War II. They were World War II vets. So that's an interesting aspect of the war. How long did that go on for with the fighting there? A few months. Yeah. And, um, and so that's an aspect of the world that's directly related to the Jews. Not so much to the Holocaust, but to the Jewish people, to Jewish history. Um, but this Madagascar plan was an interesting plan that, that since it's a French colony, French are collaborators... So let's bring all of Europe's Jews. There's 9 million Jews in Europe. All occupied Europe's Jews. We're going to bring them in ships, huge ships. We're going to stuff them all on. And we're going to bring them through the Suez Canal to Madagascar. And we're going to dump them all in Madagascar. And obviously there's no way that island can sustain those people. There's not, no food, no housing, no anything. We're going to surround the island with, with, uh, with the, the German Navy. No one can escape the island. And it will be just a matter of time before all the Jews there die and we solve the Jewish problem. Right? That's the Madagascar plan. There's only one catch. There's the British Navy. And the British Navy's in the Mediterranean. And most importantly, they're in the Suez Canal. And they said, no problem. As soon as we defeat the British Navy in the Mediterranean, we'll be able to open the, the Suez Canal will be open for the Germany and we can bring all the Jews there. So why did the Madagascar plan, why was it ever implemented? Because the British Navy was never defeated in the Mediterranean. So the naval war being fought in the Mediterranean, the, the, paratro- the largest paratroop invasion in, in world history at Crete, and the battles at Malta, and, and North African Front, where the British eventually defeated them at El Alamein in Egypt, all that rumbles, tank corps, right? The Field Marshal Erwin Rommel, um, all these, all that whole African uh, Mediterranean wars fought by the Nazis, the German Navy and the German Army and German tanks in Africa to defeat the British in that theater because they failed and the British were not defeated. So the Madagascar plan has to be abandoned. And with every type of emigration, expelling, starvation, plan exhausted so the Nazis move forward to the final solution. So the war and and what's the cruel and almost tragic irony of all this is that some of it has to do with victories of the Allies. Victories of the Allies ironically bring us closer to the final solution. That's one of the ironies of it. But um, but there's better ironies, so we'll get to that also. So the, the war has a direct effect on 
leading the Nazis to the final solution. Now, how did the final solution develop from then is about an hour and a half lecture. We'll save that for another time because how does that get to the final solution? We still need to, we still need to figure that out, right? So that's a lot of other things happening on the ground related to the war in the East, um, related to the Nazi policy of war in the East. So I'm not going to get it into too much detail, but um, I'll touch on some aspects of it. Once I mention the war in North Africa, though, I want to take another tangent here, is that we very often view the, I think I once spoke about this, spoke about the North African Jewry and the Holocaust, Sephardic Jewry and the Holocaust, I, I spoke about that a year or two ago. Um, if, you didn't, if you weren't here when I did, I think they post all the, all the lectures on the website, so you can check out that one. Um, it's, it's from a couple of years ago. So, so the, we think of, we think of uh, the Holocaust as some sort of Ashkenazi affair, that's because Hitler believed in the unity of the Jewish people more than we do, and he didn't differentiate between Ashkenazi and Sephardi. And and he he um, the function of the Holocaust was which countries he got to. That we said the war. Now North Africa was for the most part either under indirect Nazi occupation, Vichy France, such as Morocco, Algeria. Um, Italy as an ally of Nazi Germany, such as Libya and Tunisia, or, for short periods of time, direct Nazi occupation in Tunisia, Libya, and Egypt. Very short time. And because it was such a short time, there was very little that the Nazis could do against North African Jewry. So, here we see the other flip side. The defeat of the Nazis in North Africa by Field Marshal Bernard Law Montgomery at El Alamein, and then Operation Torch, the invasion of the American forces at, uh, at uh, Morocco and, and Algeria um, in 1942. So those, which, 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 uh, which puts a pincer uh, point on, 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 the, on Rommel's tanks in North Africa, finally at the Battle of Tobruk in Tunisia, He's, they leave the African continent and the Nazis are completely defeated in Africa, so Allied victories make it that there's no final solution for North African Jewry. And the large Jewish communities of Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, they don't go unscathed. There were thousands of Jews who were killed, many more who were put into concentration camps and suffered, but there was no final solution. Men were sent en masse, at least, to the gas chambers in, in Poland. So that's an Allied victory in North Africa prevents the final solution from being implemented there. We get to the um, the, the I want to you know focus a little bit more on the East, the war in the East, the Eastern Front, not in the Far East, the Eastern Front, um, um, and how it affects uh, how the, the the battlefields of the Eastern Front affect the final solution, which is the main story because Jews are in Poland and the Soviet Union. That's where most Jews are. As far as Hitler is concerned, the war is against the Soviet Union. At its peak on the Western Front, there were 60 divisions of the Wehrmacht, of the German army. At its peak on the Eastern Front, there were over 200 divisions. Um, at its peak in the North African, at North African Front, Rommel had seven divisions. So the British love talking about how Montgomery defeated the... Uh, the uh, the uh, the Germans in North Africa, which is wonderful, but it, you know it wasn't actually a major front of World War Two, but that's fine. So they don't have much to talk about the British. So let's you know. So the 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 um, so the 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 Eastern Front. As far as Hitler's concerned, there are no rules. There's the famous Commissar Order that's given. German generals are tried after the war for war crimes on the Eastern Front. Because you were allowed to kill civilians if they were suspected of being communists or, or politically affiliated with, with communism. Um, you were allowed to kill prisoners of war because he felt there was no Geneva Convention on the Eastern Front. You were allowed to kill anyone being sus- suspected of being part of the partisans. So he would wipe out villages. The German army would wipe out... Over six... Listen to this statistic. Anyone see the movie Come and See? Come and See. Okay, you should. Am I allowed to recommend movies? <laughs> so, 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 in Belarus, it's a country today, 
Uh, Belarus was a was a was part of the Soviet Union. Belarus over 600 villages were wiped off the face of the earth by the Nazis during their occupation of Belarus. Over 600 villages, men, women, and children. Very often they were rounded up, put into a wooden building like a church or something, and burned to the ground. Everyone's burned alive. The whole operation would take two hours. That's what, that's what they would do. Why? Because they had, were suspected of providing food for uh, for Soviet partisans in the forest, and the Nazis were trying to cut off their food source in the anti-partisan war. So they would they would they would just wipe out villages, kill civilians. Nothing to do with Jews. Nothing to do with Jews. And and a quarter of the of the Belarusian population was killed by the Nazis during World War Two. So the, the there's there's the war in the East is this brutal war. Leningrad, the siege of Leningrad, the thousand day siege that was nine hundred and eighty something days. So the the siege of Leningrad, a three year siege. Hitler gave an order to his generals, and this is in writing. We have this. This is one of the main war crimes things at Nuremberg that the Soviet justices and prosecutors brought up. He said, "I don't want to feed an urban population." If the city offers to surrender, do not take it. Do not take their surrender. We are going to deliberately starve the population of Leningrad because I have no interest in feeding a urban civilian population. We're going to wipe the city of Leningrad off the face of the earth. And in the ensuing three years, that's what happens. Over a million Leningrad civilians die during the siege of Leningrad. Just to put that into perspective, more Soviet civilians die in Leningrad than the American and British military casualties of World War II on all fronts, including the Pacific Theater, combined. American and British combined, all fronts, all military casualties of World War II. Fewer of them died than Soviet civilians during the siege of Leningrad. Just to put things into perspective. Now, if you go to the museums in, 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 in Eastern Europe, which, which I do with groups sometimes, you see the daily food ration of bread that a civilian got in Leningrad. It's less than what a Jew in a concentration camp, a Nazi concentration camp, got in, in Auschwitz. The, the, the starvation was, was, was complete. It was total. There was cannibalism. It was insane. It was, it was, no, it was impossible to survive. And um, and the reaction by the Russians, right, yeah, right, because all they had, they had, um, they had these little little pieces of bread, which half of it was really sawdust; it wasn't even flour, and that was a daily uh, bread ration for for uh, for for. Now, what am I? Well, I'm not trying to, you know, try to, try to. I'm not trying to broaden perspectives here. I'm trying to uh, give context for the final solution, because there's no rules, because Jews are seen as communists, because. There's this decimate. In 1941, the biggest victims of the East were not Jews. In 1942, they were. In 1941, three million prisoners of war, Red Army prisoners of war, officers, Russian soldiers, Red Army soldiers, die or are murdered in Nazi captivity. 1941, summer of 1941, four months. Three million Red, Red Army soldiers. The Nazis didn't kill nearly as many Jews as that during 1941. 1942, they killed a lot. But in 1941, they 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 they, they took in all these prisoners. They put them into big barbed wire encirclements and just let them die. They didn't feed them. So so what, why is this all this important? Because in a place where there's no rules, where Nazi ideology has created a framework where where Slavs are a lower race, but Jews are untermenschen. They're they're not human at all. They're 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 a subhuman race, and Jews are all communists. And here there's this killing spree that's going on because because there's no rules in the East. So then Jews are seen as part of the strategic enemy in the East, and they need to be exterminated as part of the war goals. And initially, Soviet Union Jews are killed as part of war goals. There's a big controversy if during those months that we don't know when the final solution exactly was implemented, 
The Einsatzgruppen are killing the Jews of the Soviet Union. Every village that's occupied, every shtetl, every town, every city. The Jews are rounded up, marched to the outside, to the outskirts, to the forests. They're forced to undress and dig their own graves. And then they're machine gunned into their graves. That's how Jews are killed in the Soviet Union. I think I covered that topic once here as well, um, a year ago, when we talked about the Ukraine uh, war and, and stuff. So, so in those early months, it's not even the final solution. So why are all these Jews being killed? Because it's part of the war goals in the East. It's part, they're the strategic enemy. That's important to understand. And that evolves into the final solution, and then, it's, and then it's the Jews as the enemy. But the war against the Jews and the World War II connect at this point in those early killings of Soviet Jews. But it's more than that. It, it's that... Okay, ten minutes left. And um, the, there's, the, there's another two points to make about this. Number one, that means we have something very important that's been denied for many years. Um, there, after the war, the German generals in captivity, they developed a myth. German army generals, not SS officers, um, called the clean Wehrmacht myth that the German army was a professional military, just like the British army, the American army. They may have done some war crimes. They may not have. But look, the American and British armies also did war crimes, right? The bombing of Dresden and, and things like that, right? So armies occasionally engage in, in war crimes. But the army has nothing to do with the Nazi party. The army has nothing to do with Nazi ideology. The army has nothing to do with the SS, who are these cruel, horrible monsters who ran the death camps and concentration camps, who killed Jews. The army is a military fighting World War II. Never mind that the war crimes they carried out, like I mentioned, a few of them, they perpetrated, were monstrous. I mean, we could go on. Stalingrad, all these places, primarily in the East. Um, there were... Isolated examples in the West also. The Battle of the Atlantic, um, U-boats targeting civilian uh, uh, vessels. But, uh, there were, there are, but mainly in the East. The Battle of Stalingrad was the worst, the most deadly battle in military history of the world. There was never any battle in world history that killed as many people, soldiers and civilians, as Stalingrad. It was just an awful, an awful... I mean, it was an awful thing. It was it was a terrible, terrible battle, because and, and at some point it lost its military significance. At some point, it was just the egos of Stalin and Hitler um, who didn't want to back off. So, but it, but in any event, that's the theory. That's the myth that's developed, and there's it, it developed with limited success in the early years. Today, it's it's been debunked so much that I think most people are aware. But we'll still mention it. That in the East, because of everything I just mentioned, the army participates in the final solution. The, uh, the Wehrmacht, the professional army, ha- assists the SS by providing personnel, by providing security backup, and in some isolated instances, even in active murder. Soldiers, regular troops, not SS, not police, not local collaborators, actual army people carrying this out. So the Wehrmacht is witnesses to the final solution and does nothing about it. They don't protest. They don't back off. But that's new. That's okay. They also provide strategic. They provide uh, um, troops, security, machinery, trucks, trains. The army is, is, has all the logistics. They provide the local govern, government, right? So they're in there by roundups. They're overseeing roundups of Jews in each place because very often it's a military administration. And in some cases, they're even actively participating in the final solution. Now, sometimes the army created camps for factories to get free slave labor. So they ran these, the military ran these camps. So sometimes they would fight with the SS about liquidating Jews because they, they needed... They needed the, they had a munitions factory in, in wherever, in Minsk, uh, you know, and the Jews in the Minsk ghetto were working there, and they needed to, uh, they needed to keep them alive. 
So they didn't keep them alive out of big Rachmanis, because they loved Jews so much. If they loved them so much, then they wouldn't keep them as slave labor. They would pay them for their labor, and they also wouldn't starve them to the bare minimum, right? So, and they would give them normal working conditions. Um, but, um, but when the army's in retreat, they tell the SS, yeah, now we don't really need them anymore, you can take them. So there's, there's these clashes between the SS and the Wehrmacht, but it, it was never, it was always in, because of the military's uh, best interests. Um, so that's, that's another point to, to mention. Another point to mention is that there are Jews serving in the Red Army. So, so these are, these are Jews on the Allied victorious side. There's a half a million Jews serving in the Red Army. Communist, uh, you know, Russian, Belarusian, Ukrainian Jews. And, uh, and they're serving with bravery. Close to 200,000 of them are killed. That's, uh, that's like 30, 40%, a very high percentage. So there, there are 200,000 Jews who are killed by German bullets on the Eastern Front. But they're not Holocaust victims because they are they are killed with in Red Army uniforms. They're killed by by um, on the battlefields of World War Two. So that's that's another World War Two Holocaust uh, place where it crosses crosses paths because I say and it's a, it's a big number two hundred thousand right. So I would say is the average Jew who's killed in the in Eastern Europe by a German bullet during World War Two a Holocaust victim. We, without even thinking, we would say, yes, I mean, that is the Holocaust, right? Jews in Eastern Europe killed by German bullets or gas, right? And here we have 200,000 who don't fit that description. So it's another thing to keep in mind. I want to end off with the three minutes we have left. We'll get away from Eastern Europe from uh, for a minute um, and talk about the United States, Japan, a little bit of the, of the fringes of World War II um, and how it relates First of all, the Pacific Theater and the U.S.-Japan War, does that have an impact on the Holocaust? Very, very little. Uh, I'll give a couple of examples. First of all, there were thousands of Jewish refugees who end up in Japan and who were trying to make it out, including the Mir Yeshiva, but many others, thousands of Jewish refugees. And Japan is starting to plan Pearl Harbor, and they don't want foreigners in Japan, around thousands of refugee foreigners who aren't accounted for, so it's easy to sneak in spies into groups like that, and they're very wary of spies. So they take all these Jews and dump them in Shanghai, which is under Japanese occupation since 1937, when they invade Manchuria in China, 1931, the second stage of 1937. In the Far East, we, call, we say World War II starts in September 1st, 1939, with the German invasion of Poland. That's what we are all, all taught, right? That's because we are Western-centric, and we couldn't care less what goes on in the Far East. In the Far East schools, in Japan, in China, in Korea, till today, they're taught that World War II starts in either 1931 or 1937, because that's when Imperial Jap- Japanese forces invade China. At those two stages, so why shouldn't we count it since then? Because the only thing that's important is what happens in Europe, obviously. That's why. So the the the, the Jewish refugees end up in Shanghai, where they live out the war. So here, a World War II, the battle of, of of Pearl Harbor affects Jewish lives. Not only that, but the Nazis try to pressure their Japanese ally. They have all these Jews under their control in Shanghai. They should implement the final solution against them. And to their credit, the Japanese imperial government had no problem starving U.S. soldiers to death in the Bataan Death March, but they would not lead Jews on death marches or kill them. So they, the final solution is never implemented by the imperial Japanese government. Um, the another thing is right. Jews or just it wasn't worth it. What's the, what we know? There's all kinds of stories why. Um, the Japanese didn't have that kind of mindset. Oh, you reminded me of something else. Here we go. It's not clear why. It's not, there, there, there's, a, there's a, some legends involved also. The Amshin of Rebbe did some sort of mythos and spoke to the Japanese government and, uh, and, and convinced them not to. There's other reasons what didn't serve their interests. They didn't have that type of mindset to just to wipe out a civilian population for no reason. They did it to the Chinese, no problem, but they didn't do it to uh, people who weren't Chinese. Um, so the... The, 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 but you remind me of something else. 
another World War II and Holocaust. The Nazis have many allies during World War II. Japan, Italy, Bulgaria, for most of the war, Romania, for most of the war, Hungary, and pretty much for the... I said Italy, right. So until end of the war, northern Italy is under direct Nazi occupation. Okay? So... That's a World War II strategic alliance. Romania and Hungary especially, they join um, uh, excuse me, uh, Hitler's side because they want to re- recover territories taken from, the, by them, by the, from them by the Soviet Union. So they are war allies with Nazi Germany. So that's a World War II alliance. A world, their armies, Hungary and Romania, Italy, their divisions invade the Soviet Union alongside Germany in Operation Barbarossa. So one of the quirks, ironies of the Holocaust and the final solution is that the safest place for a Jew to be during World War II was in, an, was in a Nazi, in Europe, was in a Nazi allied country. Hungary, Romania, until they switched sides, and Romania, Romania especially, if you were, only if you were a Romanian Jewish citizen, if you weren't, then you were in big trouble by the Romanians. Um, Italy, Japan, Bulgaria. All those countries collaborated with the Nazis. They all implemented laws along similar lines to the Nuremberg Laws. They all had anti-Jewish policies. Some of them even set up slave labor camps to exploit Jewish labor. Many of them stole Jewish property. But not one of them rounded up Jews and put them, sent them to the gas chambers especially their own citizens. Romania did it to other Jews, not to their own citizens. So, Nazis pressured them, asked them, begged them, threatened them, but they didn't. Nazis rounded up Jews and put them into gas chambers. They had local collaboration all the time who helped them do it, but a country as a policy, the only country as an official policy that did that was Nazi Germany. So you were pretty safe in those countries. You suffered as a Jew, but you were safe from the final solution. And that's an irony. And that's a World War II irony. How can you have Hungarian Jewry, one of the largest Jewish communities in Europe, that until March 1944, when they fall under direct Nazi occupation because Horthy, Admiral Miklos Horthy, the, the uh, dictator of Hungary, decides to switch sides to Stalin... And Hitler wasn't excited about that prospect, so he invades Hungary and he occupies the country. And when they fall under direct Nazi occupation, he starts deporting Hungarian Jewry to Auschwitz. But until that point, in the middle of Europe, in the middle of this whole war, Hungarian Jewry is living pretty safely, pretty normally. Not great, not a wonderful life, but but safe from deportation, safe from the gas chambers. So that's that's an iron. Same thing with Japan. Um, and you know, on a much smaller scale, I think now we finished. Um, but one last, uh, last little thing um, uh, is that one of the most important events in the process of coming to the final solution was that once the final solution is decided upon in October, November, 1941, the Nazi hierarchy decided to call a conference at Van Zee, the Van Zee Conference which is a coordinating coordination conference, very bureaucratic uh, um, uh, officials, representatives of all the various government offices in, 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 the, in Nazi Germany. Um, about 15 of them sit around the table and discuss the technicalities of implementing the final solution, the foreign ministry and the, and the, the SS and the... Uh, and the internal security, and all the different ministries, treasury, and the, uh, the whatever, all the ministries. It was like a real government official meeting. Adolf Feichmann attended the meeting, and he wrote the protocol, which we have until today, and he was questioned about it at his trial. And, um, and, he, and th- this conference really got the final solution underway. Now, everyone knows that it took place on January 20th, 1942, at this big villa in Vanze, which today, which today is a museum, which is a suburb of Berlin, Vanze. And what most people don't know is that we have also the invitation sent out to all the participants in the meeting. And we have those records as well. And the invitation says that it was originally scheduled for December 11th, I believe. In other words, more than a month earlier. 
And for some reason it took place on January 20th. The theory is, is that the, Pearl Har- the bombing of Pearl Harbor threw off the Nazis. They were caught by surprise. They needed to decide whether to, uh, to declare war on the United States. And that event uh, that the Japanese forgot to inform their allies about uh, threw off the Nazis and they needed to uh, collect themselves before they went about with the final solution. So they pushed off the conference for over a month. So they're in a little, another little thing that affected the final solution that the Van Zee conference took place a month and a half later than originally planned because of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. There's obviously lots more to how World War II and the Holocaust are connected and impacted it, but this was just a few illustrations of this idea, and we always have to remember to keep in mind how world, uh, how Jewish history does not take place in a vacuum, it takes place within the greater context of world history, and that will help us and deepen our understanding of our own past. Thank you.